this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Restaurants almost feel indigenous to the American landscape. Whether you're weaving past them by the thousands when you're driving through a metropolis on the east or west coast, or whether, like me, you find yourself in a small town in the middle of the Midwest, which still manages to boast one Indian restaurant, two Middle Eastern restaurants, and a handful of Mexican and Chinese restaurants. But did you ever wonder just how someone living in Athens, Ohio, could end up eating seaweed egg drop soup on a Tuesday night in September? How exactly did we as Americans come to embrace such a rich and ethnically diverse restaurant culture? This is one of the many fascinating questions that Andrew P. Haley explores in Turning the Tables, Restaurants and the Rise of the American Middle Class, 1880-1920. to Haley's book tells the story of a middle-class revolution, one that changed American restaurants from aristocratic establishments in the thrall of French culture and French food to democratic places where middle-class Americans with a few extra dollars could enjoy a night out without worrying about whether they had on the right evening gown or knew the correct pronunciation of menu. Along the way, Haley makes insightful observations about subjects that range from the rise of middle-brow culture in America to the practice of tipping. A winner of this year's James Beard Award for Scholarly Work, Turning the Tables is that rare book that's satisfying to read if you're interested in academic ideas like the history and origins of class consciousness, or if you're just curious about why that stereotype of the snooty French waiter remains with us. Please join me in conversation with Andrew Haley. My name is Eric LeMay, one of the co-hosts here uh, for the New Books on Food channel, and today I'm going to be talking with Andrew Haley, who is the author of Turning the Tables, Restaurants, and the Rise of of the American Middle Class, 1880 to 1920. Andrew, thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Eric. Your book was wonderful, uh, and there are so many things that I'm looking forward to talking about, including what it's like for you to go into a restaurant now. What do you see, having written this history, uh, that the rest of it have? And I would have to say that after spending time with your book, I find myself thinking through everything um, from the Applebee's on the side of the road on which I live um, to what it's like to sit down and read a menu when foreign words show up. Um, It's a wonderful book, and uh, we feel quite grateful to have you on the show. Thank you. Um, well, no, it has changed dining a little bit for me, um, although I have to admit I am a uh, historian and we spend most of our time in the archives, not in the restaurants. Um, and so one of the questions that people always ask me is, oh, you must have gone to a bunch of amazing restaurants. Um, the sad fact of the matter is that the restaurants I study are closed. And while they do have a legacy, um, they're they're very much in the past. Um, So it has changed dining for me in the sense that, um, you know, it it, is I now see the relationship between the restaurant and the customers very differently. Um, And it's no longer about 
oh, the restaurant's just trying to sell themselves. It's about the customers who are there trying to find some meaning in that dining experience. I think one of the pleasures of the book is the restaurants of the past that you do take us into. And uh, one of the the beauties of the writing is that you make them come alive so vividly and you bring in this cast of characters. And I think, uh, you know, if it's if it's an academic history, it's one that has um, some of the characterization and setting of I don't know a period Hollywood movie or something like that. But before you take us to Delmonico's or wherever else you might want to take us, uh, let me just ask you a little bit about yourself. Maybe you know your background as a writer or what it what led you to this particular project. Sure. Um, well, I grew up in New Hampshire um, and had a Lebanese-American mother, who I think is probably the first influence and owes a lot of credit um, for this book. Um, I grew up in a family where cooking was everything, um, where food was everything, and cooking was important, too. Um, she taught me how to cook, um, and she taught me to really care about food. My parents took me out to restaurants when I was a little kid, and I can remember, I can remember to this day, um, the first time I was allowed to order off the adult menu. It was probably the most important day of my life. So I've been, I've been working on this for a very long time. Um, married a chef, um, and that didn't hurt um, as well. And that was certainly part of the inspiration uh, for the book. And she also kept me grounded. It was she who insisted that this should not be an academic book just for other scholars, but a book that, that, that people wanted to read. So. I think uh, I would highly recommend it to the readers listening out there, for it is a highly readable book. And so uh, thank your wife for us. <laughs> I will. And tell me a little bit about your, your background as a historian. So how did you become interested in, in the rise of the middle class in American culture? Well, sure. I am... Um... I went to the University of Pittsburgh, um, a university, uh, a, a history department that has always been interested about class. Um, but the more I studied the working class, the more I, as fascinating as that story was, it was disconnected from my own experiences. I grew up in a middle class household. Um, my father was an electrical engineer. Um, and I wanted a kind of history that related to my own experiences. Like so many historians these days, I drew on my own experiences in deciding to do this project. So it seemed to me that while we as historians talked a lot about class, that we talked a lot less about the middle class. Now, I, I have to say, there, I, I, I built this on the, the, the shoulders of other people who did um, some fantastic work. But, it, but there seemed to be more to be said about how the middle class came into existence. So my inspiration for this project was very much to talk about the middle class. But I, and, and I was looking for a way to be able to discuss the middle class. Having been surrounded by food all my life, um, it, restaurants seemed like an obvious answer. It's a, it's a wonderful way to go at it. And what's curious, um, I found it in thinking about class in the book, is that uh, when you think about words like revolution or revolt, um, often you think about you know the the proletariat rising up and and throwing the aristocrats out of their mansions and you know taking them away from their tables. Um, but these key terms, these explosive terms of revolt and revolution, are ones that are in the center of your book about the middle class. Can you take us into that revolt and tell us a little bit about what that is? Sure. Um, so 
in the 19th century in the United States, um, you have the development of a modern middle class. Um, there had been people who historians like, a talk, like to talk about as a middle class before this time, um, very localized in, in um, cities like New York and Philadelphia. You might have had merchants or uh, small businessmen um, who we could talk about as a middle class. But in the late 19th century, a new middle class emerged. These, this was a middle class of professionals like lawyers and managers. Um, now, these folks... <clears throat> And they were a middle class in the sense that they uh, they had some of the privileges of being in the middle class. They were uh, they worked somewhat nine to five jobs. They had leisure time. They had a little bit of disposable income. They weren't working class in that sense. Um, but they also weren't the upper class. They didn't own the businesses that they worked for, for the most part. So they were working for an upper class. And this, this meant that in terms of class, they have a kind of, they're, they're in between. Um, and their identity as a middle class was very unstable, I argue, in the book. They didn't have a real sense of who they were as a middle class. By the end of this story, I think they have a better sense of who they are. Um, and they do that by coming around issues or kind of gathering around, organizing around issues they care about. Um, and it turned out that going out to eat, dining, was an issue that they really cared about. Yes, there's this uh, moment where you talk about in the book that the middle class com- came to know itself as a, a social and consumer class. And it's almost as if the impression I had at that moment in the book is by looking into the mirror of a menu, the middle class suddenly began to see itself um, as a unity yeah, if I can if I can take us back a little bit, I would um, love it if you the would. restaurants that um, had emerged in 19th century America kind of fell into two categories. There were these upper class restaurants, the elite restaurants. You mentioned Delmonico's. Um, it was one of the first. It was it was kind of the the north star of restaurants in the United States. Um, and these elite restaurants catered to the very wealthy with French food, with French chefs, with very specialized menus. And then there were other restaurants in the city. Um, These were mostly restaurants of convenience. Um, They served businessmen who desperately needed a lunch, as well as dock workers who desperately needed a lunch. Many of them wore bars as well as restaurants. Um, And they were extraordinarily functional. Um, they, they, They would get food to you as quickly as possible. Um, the food was, by all accounts, barely edible, um, and they got you out the door as quickly as possible. Um, and so the middle class are, are, are facing this very inhospitable landscape. On the one hand, the elite French, French restaurants are too expensive. By today's, uh, in today's dollars, it might have cost as much as $200 for a couple to go out to eat. Um, and they are also restaurants designed for the elite, and so the middle class don't necessarily have the cultural capital. They don't necessarily have the knowledge they need in order to enjoy these restaurants. They don't know how to talk to these waiters. They don't know the language of the menu, which is this very um, specialized cook's French. Um, they're unfamiliar with the dishes, um, and they are at a huge disadvantage as a result. 
this creates a real incentive for the middle class. They, they would love to go to the elite restaurants, but having uh, a feeling excluded from that spaces, from those spaces, they need to find a place that's middle class where they will be comfortable. Um, and in my story, in turning the tables, they began to kind of explore the city. They find some American restaurants that are, are attractive to them, um, that are clean enough, that serve food that is familiar, but they're particularly attracted to ethnic restaurants. Um, these ethnic restaurants are family-friendly restaurants. Um, the entrepreneurs who are new to this country are often very eager to serve the middle class and to encourage middle class patrons, and so these restaurants are willing to adapt to the, to the middle class. Um, and they, um, you know, they clean up their floors. They buy new china. Um, in some cases, they actually move to middle class neighborhoods. And as the middle class starts going out to these restaurants, whether it's the ethnic restaurants or not, they begin to see themselves. As you say, they see themselves in the menu. Um, the menus are written for them. Um, not only are the ethnic dishes modified in such a way that they'll appeal to American tastes, but some American dishes are incorporated on these menus as well to make them feel at home. They also see themselves in the other customers in these restaurants. I mean, I kind of can imagine this, these middle class patrons sitting around and um, at a restaurant that's becoming popular among the middle class and one day noticing that the other patrons are not Italian or Chinese, but rather are people very much like themselves dressed like themselves, people of the same class, maybe even people they know from the neighborhood. And so they get a sense that this is not just, they're not the only adventurer going out to these restaurants, that this is in some ways what the middle class do. That's wonderful. And I, I think that one of the, the things that's fascinating about the story that you're able to tell, and as you just told it there, is that there's a, um, you're, you're attributing a, psychological element, uh, almost as if the class were an individual, they get uneasy, they start looking for things where they can feel comfortable. And the way that you establish this in the book is through a remarkable variety of, of rich archival sources. Um, and I'm wondering if you could, you could tell us a little bit about, you know, how you go from, say, the menu um, to something like a sense of uneasiness. Um, so you have some wonderful examples of French menus in the book for, um, to take one instance. Um, so how do you begin making that leap to tell the story of a class? And I know in the beginning you quite wonderfully as a, a, a dutiful academic say that when you're talking about the middle class, you recognize that there are middle classes. Um, but it does make for a very compelling read as almost as though the protagonist at the center of our story is this group of people, the urban middle class, uh, searching for themselves in this time period. Yeah, I was very aware when I was writing the book um, that this was not a book about individuals. There aren't, there are restaurants um, and there are occasional figures who, who appear to write diatribes against the elite restaurants. But there aren't very many people um, in this story or individuals in this story who I could trace as historians often do. Um, this was really the story of collective action. Um, and some of it came from looking at the details of their experience. I often thought of this as kind of a, a behaviorist project um, or a behavioral project in that I was looking at the way the restaurant changed 
and then using those often very subtle changes to be able to talk about who it was who was going to those restaurants. Um, and some of it comes from a little bit of sociological theory thrown in there. Um, there was these marvelous studies in the 1970s that were mostly focused on issues of segregation. Um, and they argued that people could make really small changes um, or have really small preferences. In the case of segregation, they said that even if nobody was racist, if you had a slight preference to have one of your neighbors be of the same race that you were. Um, so if you're white, if you wanted to have a white neighbor, or if you were a black, you wanted to have a black neighbor. You might not mind that your other neighbor was of a different race, but you wanted at least one neighbor who is of the same race. Over time, those tiny preferences could result in a city becoming perfectly segregated, white on one side of the town and black on the other side of the town. And I thought that applied to these restaurants. It's not that everybody in the middle class sat down one day and said, oh, we're unhappy with the upper class elite restaurants, um, but rather that they had a sense of exclusion. Um, waiters who were obnoxious to them or gave them tables in the back of the room um, or uh, tips that just seemed impossibly high or um, <clears throat> or just the sense of confusion when they walked into a restaurant and the menu was unfamiliar. And that very subtle sense that they didn't belong was enough to drive them out of the French restaurants. There were no guards. Nobody prevented them from, from entering these restaurants. But it was enough to drive them out of the restaurants and to direct them, this collective group of people, all in the same direction um, to look for alternatives. So one of the things that, that alienated them were these uh, French menus. Um, and the menus were um, uh, elaborate and archaic, I guess, um, by our standards today. Um, the, the menus at the time, what happened in these restaurants is that the, everything was a coarse menu for the most part. And so you would sit down and eat, Oh, from five, six, seven, you could be as many as 11 different courses. Um, and the dishes that were served, it was entirely up to you to decide which of the dishes you were going to have for each of these uh, courses. They were often a dizzying array. By the end of the 19th century, some of these menus were 200 or 300 um, uh, dishes on, on these menus. And the most important dishes, particularly the, the um, entrees, were in French. Um, and it wasn't the kind of everyday French that you would learn in school, although many in the middle class didn't have French in school. This was a particular form of French that had evolved in restaurants. Um, and it translated poorly into English. Uh, you know, it, it, literal translations meant that you're eating a woman's fingers, for example. <laughs> but, but, if you understood the language, if you understood this kind of code and the references to famous individuals, then the menu was perfectly understandable. You knew exactly what you were getting. The middle class didn't have the knowledge to know what they were getting. Um, the upper class did. Um, th these were the dishes that were often served, at least 
when guests arrived in upper-class households. These were the dishes that the young daughters of the upper-class um, and the young men of the upper-class had when they went on uh, a European tour, on the Grand Tour, or went to Paris to buy dresses. So they were familiar. They were raised to be familiar with these menus, but uh, the middle-class were not. And you had mentioned tipping as, as being a part of that. You have a, a chapter on tipping that, that kind of traces this in a lot of detail, uh, where one of the few figures of the many who are memorable, even, um, even though they show up shortly, uh, appears the Knight of the Napkin. Um, yeah. Please go ahead. <laughs> Yes, um, the Knight of the na- Napkin, um, uh, uh, August Bach, uh, was a waiter, an early 20th century, um, early 20th century waiter. He was very typical of the, the, the most preferred waiters in the upper class restaurants. Um, he had apprenticed um, in Europe and then came to the United States as an immigrant. And he worked over the years in some of the most well-established restaurants um, in the United States, and was very proud of the kind of people he had served, the upper-class individuals, the kind of the Rockefellers and the, um, uh, the, the, um, uh, the kind of Carnegies and the other wealthy individuals that he had served over the course of his, his life. And he lives through, since he's working in the early 20th century, he lives through this moment of transformation. Um, and he is appalled by it. Um, there's a little story that I tell in the book in which um, um, a man who he identifies, I think, as a Texan or a Southerner, comes into the restaurant. And um, as was very typical in the upper class, restaurant where the last course often involved coffee, um, our knight of the napkin, as he calls himself, um, uh, offers to serve this Texan um, a demitasse of coffee. The Texan is appalled and asks for a large cup for his. Um, And you just know that Bach sees the end of an error um, at that moment. The upper class managed to win the loyalty of men, um, uh, men like this, of the waiters, um, through tipping in part. Um, tipping was a European custom. It was kind of a household custom in the early days of tipping, where if you stayed at somebody's house, um, since you per- you created an extra burden for the servants, you might leave them a little bit of a, extra money to kind of pay them back for their service while you were there. Um, it had moved a little bit into the public sphere in Europe, but Americans just seized upon it, brought it back to the United States. And this is a time in the late 19th century when the American wealthy are getting very, very wealthy. It's industrialization is, is creating tremendous wealth. And so Americans take this small habit of Europeans and turn it into a absolutely necessary uh, part of the dining experience. Um, And we get the sense, at least, from the middle class, and granted they're a little bit biased, that the wealthy um, used this as a weapon, um, that they were aware that by uh, putting down high tips, they could demand the best service possible in these restaurants, um, and that they weren't shy about, you know, spending their money to get that very good service. Um, And that service was much more extensive 
than we might imagine today. You know, in today's restaurants, uh, the white waiter comes to your table, maybe stays with you for, 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 for 10 minutes during the course of your entire meal. It was very different in the 19th century. Um, in the best restaurants, at least, a waiter was assigned to your table. Um, and that waiter stood by your table there to provide whatever services you needed during the course of your meal. So one service that the waiter could provide um, is that the waiter helped to pick out your food. Um, This was an era of roasts and turkeys and food that was prepared in advance, not prepared uh, to order for diners. Um, and so it was the waiter who went into the kitchen and sliced off a piece of meat from the, from, from the roast and brought it to your table. And so the waiter had a lot of control over the quality of the food that you've got. But the waiter also could be asked to do pretty much anything. Um, you could ask your waiter to go down the street to the train station and get you a train schedule or across the, if this was in a hotel, across the hotel lobby to get you a cigar. Um, the waiter was, for that short period of time, your personal servant. Um, and so having command of a waiter meant a lot of prestige for the upper class. Um, and the waiters knew who the best tippers were. Um, in most American cities, there weren't that many restaurants, and people tended to patronize the same restaurant over and over again. Um, in New York City, there was a restaurant that had a reputation for being a kind of a Republican Party restaurant. Um, and there were restaurants that had a reputation for being f- for the real socialites. And so depending on how you thought of yourself, you went back to that restaurant over and over again. If you were wealthy, you tipped generously. And the waiters knew that you would provide them with um, a good tip. And so they provided you with excellent service. Well, the middle class who didn't have a lot of money and who only occasionally could go out to these restaurants, they were at at an immediate disadvantage. Um, Even if they planned on tipping, um, and even if they had the resources to tip, they weren't known. So right away, they got the worst service, the worst tables, the worst server. um, And they were very self-conscious of that. Um, so if I was a disgruntled member of the middle class at the turn of the century and I was fed up with the night of the napkin, where would I go? What, what options would I have and, and what kind of restaurant culture did I help bring into being through feeling disgruntled? Yeah, this, this, is, um, this is one of my favorite chapters, but it is also one of the few places in my book where the middle class fail. Um, They fail to get what they want. Um, There were some alternatives. Um, There were restaurants that um, had disavowed tipping. Um, It was fairly rare, but some restaurateurs trying to appeal to this middle class eliminated the tip. Most restaurateurs were open-minded about that possibility, but they didn't want to take on the additional cost of paying waiters a full salary until they knew that the middle class themselves really were going to give up this tip. And the problem was that it, it didn't take much uh, to break down the boycott, basically. You know, you had to have everybody agreeing not to do it or tipping reemerged. Um, so the middle class um, didn't find too many restaurants that actually abolished tipping. Um, in They did make some efforts to make tipping illegal, um, and in a number of states, 
tipping um, became illegal for a few years. But again, just like with the kind of voluntary boycotts, um, these efforts often broke down. People just ignored the law and it was hard to, uh, to enforce. So what the middle class turned to was what was a largely imagined ideal of a restaurant that had no waiters. Um, and so I talk about this as it was the mechanical restaurant or the waiterless restaurant. And there were real plans on the book to have these waiterless restaurants. There was a plan for um, New York proposed by a guy by the name of Henry Erkins. Um, Henry Erkins partnered up with a fellow by the name of John Murray. Uh, Murray owned a very popular restaurant in New York, a very um, elaborate restaurant um, known as Murray's Roman Gardens, which was um, designed to look like you were in some cross between Rome and and, and Athens, um, and that served mostly French food and a few Mediterranean dishes to, to spice it up a little bit. Anyhow, Murray was the experienced um, restaurateur. And he joined with Erkins and they had planned a multi-story, incredibly elaborate restaurant. And the main floor, the main dining room of the restaurant was going to have waiterless service. And the way that waiterless service worked is that you would come into the dining room, you would be taken to your table by a maitre d', but that would be the last time you'd see a server. Instead, there would be a card at your table, you'd write out your order or check off boxes, put that card in the center of the table, press a button, and the center of the table would descend down into uh, the bowels of the restaurant, basically. Um, and, you know, a short time later, it would magically reappear with your uh, dish, all, your, your order all complete, there, ready to eat. Um, that was one of the earliest efforts at doing this. Um, there was another uh, entrepreneur, a former waiter himself, a guy by the name um, John Dashner, who also envisioned a waiterless restaurant. He seems to have been somewhat unaware of Erkin's earlier plans. Um, he causes quite a sensation um, in newspapers and particularly in culinary magazines. He announces repeatedly that he's going to create this waiterless restaurant. He talks about it at, in, in some cases as if he's actually managed to pull off the feet um, and open a restaurant in Cleveland, Ohio that worked this way. But as far as I can tell, and I searched and searched, there's really no evidence that, that Dashner actually managed this um, to create a waiterless restaurant. Um, the technology was expensive and complex, and it seems to have uh, uh, never became, become real, although Dashner did have um, at least one or two examples of the waiterless table installed in restaurants. There was a Massachusetts hotel that I think through the 30s or 40s had one table that worked this way for, 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 for some years. Um, but it's less important that these became real or not. Um, these, for me, are the ideal that the middle class wishes for. Here's a restaurant that's kind of truly democratic because they don't have to deal with the awkwardness of the relationship with the server. They don't have to deal with the tipping, the actual cost of tipping. They don't have to deal with servers who are, after all, servants, but know more about the menu than they may know about the menu. Um, and they don't have to deal with what the imagined consequences, largely imagined consequences of not tipping. Um, there were all sorts of 
fearful tales of what happened when you didn't tip the waiter, from the waiter um, uh, spilling soup in your lap uh, to, you know, finding a bug in your soup. Um, or even in some cases, um, there were reports that people were poisoned by disgruntled waiters. I suspect most of these were imagined. Um, they were just, they just represent how tangible the fears of the middle class were. And I, I think it becomes a, an excellent way to give a portrait of a class through you know, the imagined object of its desire or the fears, you know, real or imagined, that it felt it, it was confronting. One of the things that uh, you take up in the book is how so much of the, the space of the restaurant was imagined by and controlled by men and that there's a revolt perhaps within the revolt uh, that women play. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Um, so... In the 19th century, restaurants were largely viewed as male spaces. Um, there was a real fear of women in restaurants um, who might try and take advantage of the men. Um, uh, well, to be a little bit more explicit about this, the general assumption was that there were women out there who would hang around restaurants um, who were basically prostituting themselves for meals. Um, and this appears over and over, not only in the kind of um, uh, prescriptive literature about the city, these stories about the kind of dangerous city, but um, in works of fiction as well in the late 19th century. Um, it's not uncommon to have women trade sex or the possibility of sex uh, for food. So this, this fear kept these elite restaurants, at least, from allowing women at all through much of the 19th century. But in the late 19th century, in the beginning of the 20th century, um, as women just are becoming much more part of public life, these restaurants begin to make it some exceptions. But they define those exceptions really narrowly. Um, they decide that they will allow women to dine as long as those women are ladies. Um, now, what exactly ladies means um, or meant at the time, uh, that was a mystery even even to uh, some of the people who, who encountered um, it in the late 19th uh, and early 20th century. Um, but in general, um, it was an excuse to allow wealthy women to dine out and to exclude pretty much everyone else, certainly members of the working class, um, but also in most cases, um, the middle class as well. And ladies had this kind of um, almost magical power about it. Once you were admitted into the restaurant, once you were deemed a lady, it didn't really matter how you behaved. Um, and so there's lots of reports from this time period in which um, uh, wealthy women are uh, drinking alcohol out of teapots or smoking um, in public. But as long as they had been deemed a lady, that was perhaps acceptable. If you were middle class, on the other hand, um, or working class, then you were suspect right from the beginning. Um, and in the book, I tell the story of... Um, um, a woman by the name of Blatch. She is actually uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton's uh, daughter, um, and she was an active um, advocate for women's rights. She had gone to Europe and participated in the the, the 
the suffragettes struggled there, and to come back to the United States. And throughout the course of her career was very active in trying to bring together middle class and working class women. Um, but in the early 20th century, she goes out to dine with a friend of hers to the Hoffman House, um, which was one of these class restaurants. And it seems that there was some misunderstanding. She she claimed she talked to somebody on the first floor of the hotel, and they told her that the um, that the kind of uh, top floor garden restaurant, I think it was, was still open to unaccompanied women. Um, um, in the evening, some restaurants were allowing, by this time, men to bring um, uh, an escort with them, um, a, a wife with them, so that couples could dine out. But unescorted women, women who are alone, were absolutely forbidden because they fell into this dangerous category of potentially being prostitutes. Um, so she thought she, it was okay for her to go up to the restaurant. She wasn't looking for a fight, in other words. Um, but when she gets up to the restaurant, she's told that the the kind of uh, magic hour has passed and that unescorted women or women who there are two women women who are, are don't have a man with them are no longer allowed to dine um, and she's called into the manager's office and she's eventually thrown out of the restaurant and she sues unsuccessfully um, claiming that this was purely discrimination um, and basically the local courts um, said no that it was up to the restaurant to decide who was respectable and the courts basically accepted the the Hoffman House's argument that just by her being there by kind of breaking the rules she was not a respectable woman and that they should be allowed to exclude her um, it's interesting to note that Blatch, who was an activist who wrote an autobiography, never mentions this event again. It was it was a failure of her life that she seemed to want to just brush under the the, the carpet. And in the book, you mentioned that this diary gets written is is it decades later, and still oh, it doesn't decades. show up. Yes, and and by the time that that she's writing it, restaurants in fact had given in to the pressure that women were putting on them. Um, in part, I think this this is not separate from the larger middle class revolution that I'm talking about. That these women, they were not only middle class women, but they were representatives of this growing middle class that's making demands on the restaurant that are saying that we want to eat in, a, uh, we want menus that are in English, we want to eat smaller dishes, we want to have those dishes uh, uh, prepared by a chef and organized by a chef so that we don't have to make all of these tricky choices. Um, and women dining out in the restaurant um, are, are part of that desire um, by the middle class to replicate their lives in these public spaces. And so this is about the time in America where companionate marriages are becoming more important to the middle class. You know, marriages where husband and wife um, were not just paired together by their parents, but claim that they love each other and that they want to kind of share their lives together and that they're doing more things together. Um, in an earlier period in American history, it wasn't unusual for men to kind of have a separate life than, and a, a separate and public life while women stayed at home um, and they you know, met once a day. Increasingly, men and women are doing things together. And so this middle class um, and middle-class men as well as women, although I certainly focus on, on women seeking this 
possibility. They want to eat out together. Um, one of the ways that the women rebel um, is that they smoke in these restaurants. Um, these restaurants had, because they had this notion of female respectability, um, they allowed men to smoke in public, but they didn't allow women to smoke in public. And so I suspect women are kind of breaking these rules all the time, but we don't hear about it. It's not in the newspapers. When it becomes public news, when it enters the newspaper, is when the women do something to say, I'm here to make a statement. Um, and so smoking becomes a kind of symbol of their, oh, we might say colonizing the restaurant. I think one of the, the impressions that emerges from your book is that uh, one of the things that the middle class at this time is interested in is, is pursuing the pleasures that are available to them by this extra wealth that they have. And uh, in your, your chapter on ethnic cuisine and the Americanization of ethnic cuisine, uh, you, you cast dining out as a kind of adventure where you go into the city and you eat cuisines that you haven't perhaps tried before. And the book closes with a, a very fascinating observation um, that you see in that moment and in that practice, perhaps uh, something of an explanation as to why America doesn't have a national cuisine. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so in, in the in the United States, there. It's just an easy question. <laughs> yeah, no. Take us back to the origins of ethnic dining by American middle class readers so you could tell us about why there's no American national cuisine so that we can understand the importance of cosmopolitanism in the current American dining scene. Ready, go. Exactly. <laughs> well, to, to, to try and put it in a nutshell, um, the, the United States had regional cuisines. Everybody knew what New England cooking was or Southern cooking was. Um, but we hadn't really developed uh, national cuisine. Part of this may be that the United States was just a pretty young nation. Part of it was that the adoption fairly early on in the nation's history of French food as the best food, as the elite food, has probably retarded a little bit the development of a national cuisine. So the middle class... Um, and we often associate this middle class with Americanism, that they want to say that we're not the poor who are often immigrants and outsiders, and we're not the rich who are trying to imitate European ways. We're right in the middle, and that we are kind of the possessors of a true Americanism. The problem when it came to food was that it wasn't clear what a true American cuisine was. Um, so... While those kind of debates are happening in magazines and journals, what the middle class actually are doing is they're going out to restaurants that are run by recent immigrants. Um, an alternative to the elite French restaurants. Uh, these were in the earliest years, in the 1860s and 70s perhaps, uh, often German restaurants. Later on, they're Italian restaurants. But by the turn of the century, in cities like um, New York or San Francisco or Washington, they involved Chinese restaurants, Japanese restaurants. Um, they might involve, you know, not a lot, but Indian food. Um, 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 so there was just a, a tremendous variety of uh, ethnic foods from Eastern Europe um, and from Europe mostly, but really from all over the world that were now available in these cities. Well, the middle class start going out to these restaurants. Um, and 
they now have an alternative restaurant culture to celebrate. And boy, do they celebrate it. Um, at the turn of the century, the middle class began to champion cosmopolitanism uh, or cosmopolitan dining. Um, and what they mean by that is that, as, as one person says, you can, in New York, you can eat in 11 different languages. Um, that America may not have a unique cuisine of its own, but it has the most diverse cuisine. The claim wasn't that the French food in, or I'm sorry, the, 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 the German food or the Italian food in New York was necessarily better than the German food in Berlin or the Italian food in Rome. But in those cities, all you could do was eat in German or uh, Italian. In, in the United States, and in New York in particular, you could eat in all of these different languages. And this made America a really special place. Um, so they begin to champion cosmopolitanism as an, a uniquely American contribution. Um, and that bolsters their status, the middle class status, right? They're the ones who have discovered this new cosmopolitan American ethnic cuisine. Um, and so they kind of, um, you, you see this boosterism um, by various cities at the turn of the century. Um, New York has the most obvious claim to be the lead culinary city. It has been the lead culinary city in terms of elite culture for a very long time, has this huge ethnic population, um, is a kind of natural. But other cities want to have that um, have the reputation for being the most cosmopolitan as well. Um, you see people in Washington bragging about Washington, D.C., bragging about their culinary offerings, their cosmopolitan offerings. Chicago always sees itself as a culinary rival um, to New York. But the real um, uh, challenge comes from San Francisco. Um, San Francisco, with its access to the Pacific cultures, um, many of its city boosters claim that they're they're well ahead of New York City. Um, and so becoming cosmopolitan, being cosmopolitan is something to really celebrate. And the middle class are attached to it. And it's their, it's one way in which they lift their own status, right? If you accept the argument that America's great cuisine is this diversity of cuisines, then you're also accepting the argument that the middle class have something special to offer. And this is a counterbalance to the aristocrats who are celebrating French food. So over time, while this starts with the middle class going to ethnic restaurants, the culmination of the story in some ways is that as restaurants get bigger in the 20th century, early 20th century, as they begin to recognize this very large middle class that has disposable income, the elite restaurants even begin to cater to this middle class. And they do so by changing their menus. And we you know, by inviting women in, by changing their menus. And one of the things that we can trace, as I said, I look at how the restaurants change as a way to talk about the people who are going to those restaurants. One of the things we can trace is the appearance of these ethnic dishes on the menus of some of the better restaurants in New York City and Chicago and Washington and uh, San Francisco and wherever else I could find a menu. And that's the moment the tables have turned. And that's when the moment that the tables have turned, uh, have truly turned, is when the middle class have begun to influence the way um, uh, Americans eat. You know, at the, the 
earlier in our talk, you talked about this as an unusual revolution. Um, and it is an unusual revolution. Um, but in the way that historians like to talk about it, I think it is a legitimate class revolution. It's not a revolution where the middle class emerge as the uh, leaders of society in terms of politics. But it is a revolution in that they become the arbiters of culture. That they become the people who decide what is fashionable, what restaurants should serve, um, um, who they should serve, whether women should be allowed in those restaurants, the size of the menus, whether it should be you know multi-course dinners or plate dinners. Um, and that's, in the United States, a kind of real power. Um, again, it's not political power, um, uh, although today you'll notice that every politician panders to the middle class, so they, they may have accomplished a little bit of uh, political power in the process, but it's cultural power. Yes. Well, you've just given us a wonderful sense of the richness of this book, and uh, I recommend it to everyone who's listening, um, because there's much more in there. Uh, and perhaps you've also given us a great sense of why it is that you won this year's James Beard Award. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. And so I'm just curious, uh, given that you've, you've finished this and are still in the process, I hope, of celebrating its success, what do you have coming next? What are you working on now? Well, I'm working on a book, slowly working on a book, um, but I'm working on a book that's going to look at children and dining, uh, tentatively titled Dining in High Chairs. Um, and so when I was working on Turning the Tables, um, one of the stories that I just wasn't able to track down one of the, the was the presence of children in restaurants, just like women become more important. I figured children and families uh, dining was going to be an important part of the story. And part of what I discovered is that I kind of ended turning the tables in the 1920s and in 1920 and the real change in children's dining came after that. It came in the 1920s um, when the first children's menus um, outside of steamships and hotels, um, uh, resort hotels, um, it started get started to appear um, uh, in large cities. So that got me interested in the topic of uh, children and dining. It was kind of a follow up to the book. But the more I thought about children, I thought it, it's not just about this public experience. In fact the public experience of children going out to restaurants is a relatively small part of the story. Um, there's another story here about children's role, um, children's lives and how they're shaped by food. Um, and so I take the story back to the 19th century to look at children in the home and argue that, you know, through the late 19th century into the early 20th century, children were often seen as much as producers of food as consumers of food, that young girls were taught to cook or to manage servants in order to cook in their homes, um, and that they took that kind of for granted. But by the end of my story in the 1950s, um, that training of young people to become cooks or purchasers of food um, is much less important. That when children are introduced to food, it's as consumers and as a game and as things you play. And this is the era of the easy bake oven, um, in other words, in which kids mm -hmm. get play with food, but they're not really being trained to cook food in the way they had once been a part of the family economy. So, well, that's a little rough um, because I'm still working on this. Uh, this will look at uh, children both in public and at home and 
at some point in time, the interaction through advertisements, um, uh, uh, through uh, cookbooks of where the public and the, the public and the private meet. So. Well, we wish you the best of luck with it. And I hope when you publish it, you'll come back and tell us about it. Uh, sure. This was great fun. Thank you so much for uh, doing this interview with us. I've been talking with Andrew Haley the author of Turning the Tables, Restaurants, and the Rise of the American Middle Class, 1880 to 1920. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you, Eric. My name is Eric LeMay, and I've been speaking with Andrew Haley, author of Turning the Tables, Restaurants, and the Rise of the American Middle Class, 1880 to 1920. Thank you for listening to the New Books Network.